You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wood. And I'm Jennifer Connor from Equestrian Businesswomen, and you're listening to Equestrian B2B, the podcast that brings together industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and equestrians for conversations about how they build and sustain a successful business. On today's show, we speak with Chloe Phillips-Harris about the Mongolian expeditions she runs, her wild Mustang retraining business, and her experience as a four-star eventer. Chloe Phillips-Harris is an inspirational leader, intrepid adventurer, and equestrian athlete from Northland, New Zealand. She works full-time breaking in and training horses, as well as leading expeditions to far-flung frontiers. Chloe has trained wild stallions in New Zealand, helped set up animal welfare organizations to aid working animals in Egypt, India, and Fiji, and raced across Mongolia. In addition, she works with eventing athletes and teaches clinics around the world. Hi, Chloe. We're so excited to have you here today and to talk about you and your career and the various businesses um, that you have now. So thanks for joining us. I'm excited to be here and talk to you guys as well. It's so great to to have you on and... um, that you were able to work with us on this time change. For everybody listening, Chloe is in New Zealand, and so we wanted to work it out so that she wouldn't have to get up in the middle of the night to talk to us. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I've done some um, middle-of-the-night, early-morning podcasts in the past, and this is a much better time zone for me. Yeah, and it works for us, too. And and I got to meet Chloe when I was at the World Horse Expo in Harrisburg, and she was at a booth right across from us, and I saw her signs, and I watched um, one of her sessions uh, for the clinic portion of it, and I was like, wow, because it's such an interesting story, and, and you've done so many different things. So one thing that really stood out to me was that um, you rode in the Mongolian Derby. Am I saying that correctly? Is that Mongolian Derby? Is it Mongol Derby? How do I say that even? <laughs> oh, look, like, honestly, even even all these years later, I'm not quite sure the which one's correct. I'm always, I always say the Mongol Derby. Um, some people, okay. the Mongol Derby, but I, I'm definitely the <laughs> Mongol Derby. <laughs> Mongol Derby, sorry. <laughs> uh, so what made you ride in that? Um... I honestly could not see any reason why you wouldn't ride in it. Um, (laughs) I had this this background in working with wild horses and training horses and horsemanship and eventing. And I was, I saw a a YouTube video of it as you do one day. And it was like people like trying to clamber aboard these rearing, bucking, bolting horses in the middle of Mongolia. And I'm like, that looks great. That looks exactly like something I would like to do. Like as soon as I said, like, yes, this is for me. Um, yeah, fast horses, no fences, wide open spaces and a way to test yourself. Like I just ticked every single box of what I wanted to do at the time. You and I oh are very different people, Chloe. <laughs> <laughs> Same. I, I mean, in theory, it sounds good to me, but there's no way I would have actually do it. Yeah. I mean, maybe like 25 years ago, I would have done that. Still, though, it might have been a, a stretch. I'm not I'm not a camper. I'm not a horse who likes or a rider who likes to be on bucking horses. So, yeah, I, I, it's incredible. So so with the dirt, with the derby, do they um, are they broke horses or they're unbroke horses? 
they are broken in, but they're, they're I, I think, um, you know, like there's there's so many myths and legends and, and things surrounding the Mongo Derby these days. But no, they they are broken in horses, but they're they're broken in for Mongolian riders, and um, you know that they are all pre-selected um, about six weeks, eight or two months before the race, and in theory put into a training program for for the Mongo Mongo Derby, but. I mean, there's still horsemanship involved and they've not seen people turn up in this brightly colored different gear. The saddles are different. The packs are different. Um, some people are not used to, you know, the Mongolians, they step up, they get in the saddle and they go. A lot of the, um, you know, riders from our world kind of flop around next to the horse, slowly climb aboard. And yeah, the Mongol horses, like th- that's not how they do things. So <laughs> it always leads to lots of wild moments. So besides having great horsemanship skills, what other kind of skills did you need to have going into it? Um, I think the horsemanship helped me a lot. I think the fact that, you know, horse training and horse behavior is my thing. Um, and also being an event rider, you know, I'm, I'm used to going at pace. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think so many things helped me now, now in hindsight, like I, I had a bit of I mean, I had hours. I had hours and hundreds of miles in the saddle before I did the Mongol Derby, whether that was out eventing or growing up riding over farms and being very independent. Like I was used to being out on my own on a horse. And I think that's a huge thing that helped me for the race. Um, Yeah, I I think even just, you know, my background, um, I I was used to problem solving on my own. I'd also worked in in a lot of different countries doing the animal welfare side of things. Um, And I think that helped me, you know, it wasn't my first time overseas. I'd I'd worked with some feral horses before. Um, And I think just the general, uh, I want to say street sense, but it's not street sense, but like the the general – uh, horse sense of how horses operate over country. So, so you know, knowing not to try and climb a steep cliff on them to take a shortcut and just, you know, following the contours of the land. And I think that general horsemanship skill helped a lot. Um, yeah. And I, I like, I loved the race and I learned a lot on the race. And then I actually went back and worked for the Mongol Derby for a long time afterwards. And I rode the race twice more, but this time with a camera filming for them. Mm, and wow. uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you. I learned a lot on the first race, and I learned a lot from watching and crewing and watching what didn't work for people, um, which was even more fascinating. And then, yeah, riding it twice more with a camera, I learned even more and just loved it. Yeah, it was great. So I know I've shared this with Jen before and our listeners, but when I was in high school, I taught riding lessons, and there was a man who came to learn to ride, and he was he was an older gentleman. I'm going to say he was like 60s and he had never ridden before, but his goal was to go and ride in the Mongol Derby. And I didn't really know anything about what it was. Um, And the woman who owned the farm was like, I don't know if this is real or not, but he swore that that's what he was going to do. And he took like a very short course in riding and I never heard from him again. So <laughs> hopefully he I made mean, it. People do it though, you know. Like I've seen, I've seen people do it, and they learn to ride just to do the Mongol Derby because it's such an amazing race. I've got a friend who did exactly that. She wow. learned to ride to do the Mongol Derby, and she she made it. And people do, and I think it's that it's that absolute um, mental resilience, physical resilience. And I think sometimes not coming in with too many preconceived plans or ideas about how you're going to do just like. Gonna say that. Like mm-hmm. a lot of those people, the brilliance and the way they can do it is because they swing a leg on the horse and let the horse do their thing. Whereas sometimes if you come from a very conventional background, you, lots of people try to micromanage and that just does not work. 
Um, right. So yeah, yeah, there are people. There are people that literally yeah. spend a year, six months learning to write, and then they go and do it. And honestly, they're they're <laughs> phenomenal. Like they usually get across. I mean, not usually. Enough of them do finish it. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing to me. I mean, maybe it's better to just not know and be naive, kind of, <laughs> or not. You know, like you said, like not know what horses really should yeah. do. I guess, yeah. and that's incredible. Yeah. You know. Um, with like the police officers over here, most of them, um, they actually prefer that they don't have experience going in. Like they want them to, they want to teach them their way fresh mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, a different, like through their program, they don't want you to actually have a bunch of experience. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So. And how old are you when you did it the first time? I was 24, I think 25, 24, 25 okay. about there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really, that's really cool. Did you have to have like camping skills or did you have places to stay? Um, so you don't have any set places to stay. I don't know if that's maybe changed a little bit in the last year, but I, I think when I did it, there was no set places to stay. So you rode for as long as you could ride. And then you could either, if there was a nomadic family that could take you in, or if it was a horse station where all the horses were going to be, that was usually a nomadic family running that station. So you could stay there um, or you could choose to take, either a tent or a bivouac bag or um something to just camp out by yourself with your horse um most of the time i just rode for as long as i could ride and then hoped that i you know some lovely herding family might take pity on me and take me in and that did happen quite a lot and those were some pretty special nights just staying with some you know families that some of them i think had an idea the race was going on and there was you know definitely one family that had no idea what i was doing in the middle of mongolia on a horse by myself um <laughs> and so that also made for some pretty funny nights yeah oh and i take it they probably didn't speak english or not no well. yeah not very well no but enough that you can get along and yeah like yeah. I, i've had plenty of camping experience if i had had to camp out and yeah again like lots of um, working with horses and traveling in various parts of the world that probably helped me feel a little bit more confident in those situations. Yeah, that's good. How many, how many days was it? I think the maximum riding days is 10 and I did it in six. Oh, okay. So oh, that's yeah. reasonable. It's not like you're out there for a month or something. No, no. And it's fast. Yeah. I mean, you, you're literally... Yeah. Yeah, it's no pony trick. I think that's what people underestimate is they think, oh, yeah, we're going to go there and we're going to go to steady jog, maybe a bit of walking. Like you're going fast to make that time, to make that within the 10 days, you know, even doing the maximum time allowed, you are going at pace for a lot of it. And do you switch horses throughout it? Yeah, every, uh, when I was doing it, it was every 40 kilometers and they brought that back, I think, about 35 kilometers now. Uh, I don't know what that is in miles, but yeah. So every, every, 35 or 40 kilometers and there's pretty stringent vet um vet checks in place as well um that run to fei standards so yeah it's it's the horse welfare is pretty paramount wow that's, that's awesome. great to hear mm -hmm. yeah so you know with doing that derby and you know having the experience that you had with horses and traveling around the world um how did you first become involved with the expedition company Ah, so um, I actually started the expedition company. Um, okay, cool. Oh, yeah, so I had been in Mongolia. I'd done the derby. Um, I had done a lot of traveling around Mongolia in my downtime. So I, I did 
the Mongol Derby. Um, and then the next year I came back and worked for it. And then I traveled on my own um, around Mongolia um, with friends once. Um, yeah. And I, I just loved it. And I loved going to more and more remote places. And I think I loved the horsemanship side of things, but I also was really curious about how, you know, how were they using camels or how were they using reindeer or how were they hunting with eagles? So I spent a lot of time um, kind of going out and doing, you know, going and seeing different nomadic groups, different herding families, seeing how they were using their animals. And I had really good friends in Mongolia, um, two of the Mongolians. And one day we just got chatting and I'd been going on and on and on about wanting to do something with camels. I really like camels. Um, and I really wanted to do, you know, a bit of a Gobi desert crossing with camels. And then my really good friend, she was like, well, you know, the camels look way better in winter. You know, they're all beautiful. They're all frosted. She was describing how the camels look down the Gobi Desert in winter. And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds really good. Like, let's cross the Gobi Desert in winter. And the Gobi Desert in winter is about negative 40 um, degrees Celsius, which is about the same in Fahrenheit. It's not much difference at that temperature. And I was like, yeah, this sounds really good. Like, if we're going to do it, let's do something extreme. And then we got talking a bit more and they're like, well, if we're going to do this, why don't we bring clients? And I was like, yeah, why not? Let's do it. And um, that's how we started an expedition company. I mean, there's a little bit more to it than that. Like I'd worked yeah. on various other expeditions and a lot more background. And a couple of years before that, someone had actually asked me if I'd do tours in Mongolia and I'd said no, because I just didn't feel it was the right time or the right, probably not the right ethics for, for me, that particular situation. Um, but when this came about and yeah, it just all fit. We were three of us. We were all really good friends. We all brought something really different um, to the table Um yeah, I, I loved doing things with animals. Um, my friend Setsuki, she really wanted to show off Mongolian culture. She's very proud of it. And then we have one other business partner called Urmburn, and he is really passionate about the Mongolian people. Um, he really, and their rights and their way of life and preserving it and showing it off and helping support the nomadic herders out in their, out in their regions. So, yeah, it was a really great meeting of minds where everyone brought in a different set of skills and a different passion that combined um, in a really positive way. So that's how it all came back. What was it like working with your friends on something like that? Amazing. Yeah, yeah. incredible. Um, and to this day, incredible. It's yeah. just so good. Um, we, yeah, and I think because we don't step on each other's toes, we all have a different set of skills and slightly mm. different, you know, visions at times, but they all combine really well. That's great. And um, from doing those expeditions, what skills do you think you learned along the way? Um, I think, I think what I probably did right is I waited and, and, and did a lot of, you know, I, I worked for an Australian, um, expedition company. Um, I had done a lot of logistics and overseas planning for, um, equine and veterinary trips overseas. So mm -hmm. I think I did a lot of my learning before I started the company. And then, I mean, it's always, you always, doesn't matter what business you have, you're always learning and tweaking. And, you know, we always are looking to improve, looking how we can do things better. Um, if it was all left up to me, I, I am very much, if you're not suffering, you're not having fun. Like that's very much like, let's push the limits. Like, let's do this. Like, if we're going to go, we're going to go hardcore. Like that is, that is always what I believe. Um, but my friend Setsuki is like, no, no, we need to have good food and we need to have beautiful outfits for the people and they need to come back having had an amazing time and being blown away by like all Mongolia has to offer. And I think, I think probably like 
these days, you know, I'm definitely like, oh yeah, okay. If she says we should add this little bit of luxury to the trip, then I believe her. And I think that kind of stuff, we, we really trust each other's judgment on more and more. Mm. Um, and then you, you just learn, you know, um, what people, I think I already knew from, from doing things, you know, what people can cope with, what people, how far you can push people and, you know, what they really want to see and enjoy. But, um, I think just managing groups and stuff, you always tweak it, always, always improving. But in general, you know, I love meeting all of our clients. Um, I think you can count so many of them as friends after expeditions, and it's really cool to see them go through something that's pretty life-changing as well. And mm-hmm. I think that's probably, you know, it's such a good learning experience. And I also think it keeps you really humble. Like the Mongo Derby changed my life, and I think, you know, I'm lucky enough to do expeditions that probably have a pretty big impact on other people's lives these days and it's really humbling experience to watch people go through that and yeah I don't know if that answered your question at all but it does yeah (laughs) yeah yeah I I imagine um because we've heard this from other people who have traveled overseas how humbling it can be to like go over and see different cultures and like especially the nomadic culture and then come back to your homeland and it makes you kind of appreciate what you have um, as well, you know. So that's uh, really interesting that you're able to bring that to other people. Mm. How, how many people were on your first expedition? Uh, there was nine of them plus me. So yeah, 10 overseas people that's a big group yeah yeah wow (laughs) yeah how long Um, how long did it take so it was 300 kilometers and it took us 10 days so we were out in the Gobi Desert in 10 days and the best part about it like I love this but um it was the coldest expedition we have ever done so we've done that expedition uh, almost every year since apart from the COVID year COVID years um but that particular expedition was the coldest it has ever been so it's called the Gobi Cold Camel Expedition and it's the day we started it was like negative 43 and there was like a cow frozen solid outside that had frozen no stop yeah that was it was like extreme cold um and camels can handle it camels can handle it but the very first day of our very first expedition was the coldest it has ever been (laughs) Um, we've never had a day that cold since, but I love it. I, I'll, yes, this is the way, this is the way you kick it off. Like what a great start, you know, like go big or go home. It is yet another way we diverge. <laughs> Absolutely. I live in Florida. I did yeah. winter. But no, it was great. I, mean, I took, my brother came with me for that first expedition and um, some of the clients were people I didn't know, but I had a couple of friends that came along as well. And it was just the coolest way to start it. It was amazing. Um, one or two of them had done the Mongol Derby before. Uh, mm. Yeah, it was it was a great way to start. Yeah. And that made you want to keep going and, and grow this company and what you could do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we just keep growing it and keep tweaking it and keep um, expanding what we offer um, mm. to this day. Did you have anybody drop out the first day? when they got there or they kind of were like, you know what, we're here. (laughs) (laughs) We've never had anyone drop out. Like we do have support vehicles for us. Um, And so occasionally people will be like, you know what, I'm going to jump in the support vehicle for a day and just enjoy the countryside um, and enjoy, you know, we've got an interpreter in the support vehicle and, and um, 
you know, they talk, tell stories and it's a chance to actually just sit in the car and hear all the stories. So, you know, occasionally you do. And, and I think for me, maybe that is one learning thing. Like I am very much like, no, but you have to ride the whole way. Like, why would you not want to ride the whole way? Mm. And then I, you know, for me, it's always good to be like, oh no, actually, you know, for some people it doesn't matter. They just want to enjoy right. the experience. And if they don't have right. to ride the whole way, that's absolutely fine. Um, so now it doesn't, you know, I'm like, yeah, if you want to jump in the support vehicle, jump in, have fun. We'll keep riding and we'll see you at, at dinner time. What other animals do you use? Oh, we use all the animals. Um, so so that was a huge driving force for me. Like I am very passionate about horsemanship. I also think how we use animals and how animals have a place in our lives going into the future is is a really big question. And I think looking at how some of these cultures are still using animals in a really positive way Um was was always a huge driving force behind doing these expeditions so originally i wanted to cross mongolia using all the different riding animals so that was horses camels yaks and reindeer and that's what we did for the first time last year that was our biggest expedition it was 21 days and um, 1200 kilometers and that's what we did last year so we use all the animals that can be ridden in mongolia um we have our great nomad expedition and that's july this year and so that's again using all four the camels horses yaks and reindeer and then we have um we have an autumn reindeer expedition that's just reindeer um we have the gobi cold camel expedition which is just camels and we have attack of the yaks which is just yaks but it's like the more it's like the leisurely um yeah, just beautiful, fun. The yaks are pretty slow. You're not having to do anything. I was just going to say, you don't gallop on yaks. You're not you? galloping on yaks. You just get to enjoy the beautiful autumn colors and the nomadic culture and stuff like that. So, yeah, we have a bit of a oh variety God. now, but we use everything. What's the most comfortable to ride? I think the camels are, but people, not everyone agrees with me. Um, uh, the yaks are really comfortable, surprisingly. Like everyone thinks they're going to be horrendous. But they're really, really smooth. They've got lovely gates. Um, they're just a really enjoyable animal to ride. And you're, you're always going up beautiful mountains. So there's always a stunning landscape. But then, I mean, the horse is incredible because they're fast. Some of the camels are, del- yeah, they're all good. They're all good. <laughs> they each have their pros and cons, yeah. I'm sure. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, so I imagine, you know, growing this takes an incredible amount of logistics and planning and, you know, getting visas for people and getting government support and all of that. Um, you know, who handles all of that for you? Is that something you do? Is it people that you employ or do you have uh, consultants and, and contractors that work for you? Yeah. So, so a bit of everything. Like I am the main person that people will talk to when they're signing up for expeditions. Um, so I will give them all the relevant info, um, how they get their visas. Uh, Mongolia's actually just gone visa free this year, which has really helped reduce my workload a bit because before that you had to do letters of invitation and, you know, um, all sorts of things. But this year, I mean, Americans, Australians, Kiwis, Canadians, you're all visa free. So that's really reduced the workload. But yeah, we share it. We share it. Um, I'm usually the person with all of our clients. Um, I've got people behind the scenes that might do some of the government stuff. Um, Between the three of us that are business partners, uh, one person does all the logistics with with the nomadic families, with the herding families. So they'll be out for months at a time 
doing the route, talking to families, making sure we have contracts in place with the families. Um, and then Setsuki, my business partner, does a lot of what's in the city and hotel bookings. Yeah, so it's a real it's a real mix of we all try to do our fair share and combine. But yeah, it's a, it takes a big team and it takes a lot of time behind the scenes to pull off these kind of uh, expeditions because we are in like our expeditions specialize in remote areas so you are not anywhere near roads you know you're not going to tourist camps you're not going anywhere near highways so so ours really do you know we're planning a year in advance for for every expedition we do wow and um are the your business partners both women no, uh, Setsuki is a woman and Unumbruin is um, a man. And yeah, so it's a good combination. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have the people who are coming on the expeditions, do they have to do any, like, is there a prerequisite for them for riding physical, just to protect yourself in the business? Yeah, definitely. There is. So everyone, you have to apply to come on an expedition. You can't just, you know, pay your fee and turn up on the day. Um, and I try to always interview or talk or in some way, you know, go through people's resumes and kind of find out why they're wanting to come, especially, and and what their, their skills are. Have they ridden a horse before? Um, are they comfortable at walk, trot, canter? And, and again, we have different expeditions that might suit different people um, and different skill levels. Surprisingly, like, if and, – and again, it's mixing the group. Like, I couldn't have – a whole team of all beginners on say the camel expedition. But if you have one or two beginners, you're usually okay. And the camels, they've they've got two humps. I mean, it's not that hard to stay between the humps. So quite (laughs) often with the camel expedition, we get a really keen girlfriend who horse rides and they bring their non-horse riding or very lightly horse riding partner along. And actually that works out well. And and the guys usually get right into it by the end. They're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go home and take up horse riding. Like this has been great. Um, but then for the great nomad expedition, you know, it's, it's really fast paced. You're, you're not getting on and walking, you're getting on and kind of trot cantering, galloping on the horse section. So there you do have to actually have some decent horse riding experience. And then the yaks again, it's a bit slower, so you can have a more novice group. Um, but yeah, we, we basically like, we run very specific expeditions and not back to back horse tracks as such so it's never ever going to be the type where you come along and you get put on a line and you go for a quiet plod along you know a very well-established trail that's probably not our thing (laughs) so what's your target audience for this and how do you market it yeah that's a very good question so i mean our target audience is not gender specific it's not age specific it's more just people who want to do something a little bit out the box, who want to have an adventure, who want to get outside or off the beaten track as such. And it's really interesting who signs up. And again, like always have amazing people turn up, like really interesting people. Like I really enjoy all my clients. And as far as ages, you know, we get everything from 20 to in their mid sixties, you know, approaching 70 turn up. And you get everything from young, keen people just really wanting to test themselves out all the way to maybe people who have raised a family and suddenly for the first time in their life actually have free time and have dreamed of this their whole life and everything in between. And you, it's not one country. I mean, we get, we get a lot of Americans, we get a lot of people from the UK, um, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, um, 
yeah, it's always a really interesting mix and I always love it. And it's always, it's always people you never get the chance to cross paths with maybe in your everyday life because you're in such different spheres, but have this thing in common and it makes for really great friendships and really interesting fireside chat. And I think it's part of the magic of it actually is that, yeah, it's a very diverse group. And where do you do your marketing for it? Uh, lots of social media. Lots of like we have a website, but mostly through social media and lots through word of mouth. Lots of return customers um, who then that's, send their friends along on different expeditions. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Do you have repeat customers? Yeah, we do. We do. We have people that are like determined to do every single expedition with us. And it's so cool. <laughs> We've got a couple of repeats this year. Um, no one's no one's done the same expedition twice, but lots of people who are like, yeah, I did that one. So I'm coming back for the yaks or I'm coming back for the camels or I'm coming back for the reindeer. Uh, which is really, really awesome. And we've got one girl who's come on a couple expeditions and now one of the interpreters that we've used lots has become her friend and is actually going to visit her in Canada for a month month this year. So it's really cool. It's like a little yeah. family, little expedition family, which I like. Um, but yeah, lots of marketing through social media, obviously things like the Horse Expo and stuff as well. But mm-hmm. I'd say, you know, the people who get in touch and sign up and are 100% coming and that you don't have to convince them, they're they're usually um, their friends have come on it or or they just see it and they're like, absolutely, like that just speaks to my soul. I'm coming and yeah. Mm. I've usually seen a photo of a frozen camel trotting through the desert or something. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have to like really determine what your costs are before you start and know like, you know, you have to have 10 people in order to make this work and yeah. – um, I imagine, you know, it takes a lot of pre-planning to be able to determine if something is going to be worthwhile. Huge, huge amount. Um, yeah, very, very much so. Um, and yeah, it's it's that fine balance because we don't take more than 10 people on an expedition. Because okay. once it starts getting bigger than that, it, it's it becomes a bit of a circus. And, yeah. and realistically, when you because we try to stay with nomadic families every night as well. We stay with a different family. And then that's just a bit too much animals that you're having to bring in or take out mm. and a bit too much. It just There's just too many of us once you get up mm. over those numbers. And you do want to keep it a really special, intimate experience. Um, but, yeah, we definitely have a number where it has to be above that to break even. And then we cap it at 10 um, yeah. to keep – because I think our expeditions are so unique. And I think capping it at 10 keeps it that way. You know, you don't feel like right. you're just a club full of people or you're on a bus tour or anything like that. But yeah, and it, and it's very difficult at the moment. You know, the last couple of years we've had COVID. Um, Mongolia is not the easiest place to get supplies at the right. best of times. Um, it's always pretty tricky logistics getting what you need in and out of the country, um, and particularly difficult at the moment. So yeah, it takes a lot of planning and a lot of logistics and a lot of um, looking at what you know things like gas prices and everything like that are doing at the moment to make sure that everyone. It's going to get paid and we're going to make a profit. Yeah. And do you work with a, like a local uh, person who supplies the animals or they're yeah, so someone we, you go back to? Yeah, we, we work with lots of different people. And so our business mm-hmm. model is basically to try and bring money into these really remote areas. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, um, we try to, the animals we use, we use a few from many different families. So we don't have one guy that supplies a hundred horses and the way we travel, we never take any animals out of their home range. So with the camels, you have the camels for three days and then another bunch of camels come in and that next bunch of 12 camels might come from three different families. And mm. so, that yeah, it's our way of trying to just um, 
making sure we have a really positive impact on the places we go makes for a lot of logistics but I think worth it and we get amazing animals and and we get amazing relationships with the families we use and it's it's like seeing it's like seeing your old friends every time you turn up on the expedition yeah. and you, you, know, you see familiar faces and familiar animals and it's really neat I, you know, I've said this before, I think in our last episode about uh, a speaker that we had at a networking brunch and she was talking about social purpose and, you know, that companies have to tell their customers what they stand for and what they believe in and what they support. And I imagine, you know, that ethos is extremely important to you and your business partners and your company to be able to say to clients, like, this is what we do. This is who we want to help. This is, you know, why we do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like it's a huge driving force with me. And I think it's why I probably waited quite a while to do something like this. And again, for my business partners, I mean, we all have slightly different things that are our main cause, but they tie in together so nicely. And I I think we've had, yeah, like I'm really proud of what we've achieved. And we've done so many documentaries that have been shown on Mongolian TV as well. And and, which Mm. has been really special and a really unintended consequence for me when I first started doing this but you know there's there's areas of Mongolia that Mongolians don't get to see that we go to so we were able to make documentaries about those places and get to show them on Mongolian TV and they've been really popular and you know people have loved it because they get to see a part of their own country that they wouldn't get to you know that 99% them are not going to get to so that's had really um, unexpected positive consequences and yeah we're I think, yeah, for me, I, I am, I'm very much someone who just lives by my morals and mm-hmm. probably to the detriment of my bank account, to be honest. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely something we strive to keep, to keep as first and foremost of, of what we do. That's great. Yeah. Now, do they provide the animals? Do they also provide all the equipment that you need or is that something you have to source as well? Yeah. So we have our own equipment. And that's just, you know, a logistics to make sure that there will be enough and that it is, I don't think anyone from outside of Mongolia is going to be keen to sit in a Mongolian saddle for a thousand kilometers. Like we would not have repeat customers if that was the case. So we have our own kind of endurance saddles that we use and a lot of our own equipment and we, we have our own trucks and vehicles and yeah, we have a huge team. Mm. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so how um how does all of this experience and um and you know part of your career tie into what you do with wild horses? Ah uh, um yeah I think I think it was you know probably the experience with wild horses that made me think I could do the Mongol Derby um which took me to Mongolia and then for me um our expedition season is not year round. I mean, we have a couple of expeditions throughout the year, but I'm not in Mongolia all year. Um, and then for me, like I love working with wild horses. I passionately love it. Um, and again, we have a bit of a season for that, for when, you know, we have to do masters and help with population control. Um, and it works in with, with a lot of office work on my part and a lot of juggling, it works in with the expeditions. And so that when I'm in New Zealand, I'm working a lot with wild horses. And when mm. I'm overseas, I'm doing the expeditions. Um, yeah. And I think, That's again, cool. yeah, yeah. 
I love it. Um, it's it's not something that is potentially. I, I wouldn't be like, yeah, this is an easy career path to anyone. Um, <laughs> it is not simple, uh, and it takes a bit of flexibility. But for me, it's it's absolutely worth it. And is the the work with the wild horses something that you just do because you love it, or is it part of a business? Um, something that you do um, to earn money? Yeah, this is the very good question. Very good. <laughs> um, so it started, you know, I think wild horses in in all the developed world are a problem just because of their sheer numbers. Um, I know America, Australia, New Zealand, they are constantly needing homes. And when I was a working pupil and kind of starting out on my own in the equestrian world, I used to take them on and produce them. I still do this. I take them on and produce them as competition horses. And I started with just doing the stallions because I didn't have the time or the resources or the paddocks or anything to have pregnant mares. And so it just made sense for me to take on stallions um, and, and train them and produce them. And then it got to the point where people were like, ah, so we'll send you all the stallions that are left in the yards at the end of muster. <laughs> and then it just kind of kept on growing and growing. And it, and it used to be that, you know, I'd take on a handful a year and I'd, I'd train them and produce them as eventing horses. And that has changed a lot since I started doing it in 2010. And so now I'm very actively involved in helping manage populations, wild horse populations near me, which means I actually go out and I muster horses on horseback. And then I am part of drafting in the yards. The majority get sent to my place, um, Sometimes that can be, you know, 30 horses or more at a time of wild horses, which wow. is always, it's a little bit stressful. Um, and then it is a mix. It's a mix of business and it's a mix of I believe in this cause. So I stay actively involved in it. And yes, I run workshops so people can come and stay with me for five days or 10 days and do a full training workshop. So maybe, you know, I know a master's coming I'll have clients already booked in and I know that the first week those horses arrive, we'll handle all the foals and they'll get to go off to their new homes. And it's just a really great way of placing these horses and setting them up for success and also helping me cover the costs of taking them all in. It, it does get to more and more now that it is, it, we're in the process of making an official charity because this, the scale of it is just so massive now. Like uh, last week I, I was up, there was a wild mare who had gotten wire embedded in her leg and she was walking around just dragging wire cord around her neck, mm. uh, around her leg, sorry. And so, yeah, like I happened to be in the area and we went and got her in and and we treated her and looked after her. And that's never going to be for profit. Like yeah, no exactly. one is making yeah. money going and helping horses that are injured. <laughs> and no yes. one's making money constantly taking in herds because they've wandered onto someone's farm and now need to be removed before they're you know going to be shot or cause damage or steal someone's domestic horses like you're not making money taking on constant herds of wild horses yeah. that's definitely the charity arm of it um and what you know like I, I feel like I have the skills to help so I always should but then yeah on the flip side I do I do earn part of my living doing wild horse workshops and teaching horsemanship and helping people tame their own wild horses and mm -hmm. that kind of thing I I saw a video of you going and getting a foal that was on somebody's farm. 
<laughs> and yes. you had to go round it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it happens all the time, all the time. Like I don't think, yeah, not a month goes by where the phone doesn't ring and someone's like, yeah, there's this, you know, wild foals wandered out of the bush or it's wandering down the road or, hey, there's this whole herd of wild horses on my property now. Can you come get them off? So, yeah, wow. it definitely keeps life in New Zealand exciting. <laughs> I mean, I imagine it is a problem on, I mean, New Zealand isn't a very big place really and if you've got these herds that just keep procreating and you just don't have the space to put them you know whereas you know the united states is if they're out west is a pretty giant place and even even we have trouble with it you know yes so i can imagine how much you need it there (laughs) absolutely absolutely yeah and especially when we have good seasons you know the horses breed in huge numbers and then you have bad season and then it's not so good but, you know, we're really lucky, like the wild horses that are near me. I mean, once they're under saddle, some of them can foot it with the best in the competition re- ring. Like I've had many, many gone to do well nationally and be really super successful. So I think the lucky thing for me is they have a very good chance at a really good domestic life and a really, you know, if they need mm-hmm. to be, they can be really competitive horses. You're not, you know, you're not dealing with scrub donkeys that are, you know, 13 <laughs> hands brown with a hammerhead and inbred. You know, we're very, very... <laughs> lucky in that regard that we have really beautiful wild horses not that looks should matter not that looks should matter oh, it definitely yeah. helps in trying to home wild it's, horses yeah so it's yeah. on the inside uh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and do you know what breed they came from originally everything yeah like yeah. thoroughbred and a mix of oh yeah yeah i would say everything like i have lines that come out looking very araby i have lines that come out looking you know like they've got a bit of clyde in them i think it's everything and yeah i think it's probably i would i would be not surprised at all to know that you know horses are reintroduced out there quite often so the bloodline is getting refreshed right. quite often as well um right. is, is the unfortunate sad truth but yeah here very much a mix not the western breeds not much you know there wouldn't be much quarter horse or paint horse or anything like that but very mm-hmm. much you know you're looking at thoroughbred uh Clydes, arabs yeah they a real mix hmm. yeah what what are the ponies because i saw that that's like different is that a different breed um, like small? It, wait are you talking about my tiny ponies yes <laughs> I, so on a completely different side note I got a little bit um, bored over the COVID lockdown and thought that it would be really cool to have an adventure race in New Zealand kind of like what we do with the expeditions overseas okay. and uh, so we decided we'd do it with miniature ponies because everyone knows that I do wild horses and they try to give me wild miniatures all the time which there is no <laughs> use for and it's not helpful to my equestrian business whatsoever Anyway, we came up, me and a friend came up with a great idea that we'd do a multi-day adventure race with all these delinquent miniature ponies. No. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I have miniature horses, which really confuses everyone, really confuses because they're like, you do sport horses and you do wild horses and what are these little things? But yeah, I actually, in two days, I'll be taking um, 30 30 miniature ponies that are now super fit and look like eventing horses. And we're going to go up and do a hundred kilometer race through the beach and forest where these wild horses also roam. And we just get runners. We get ultra runners. We get families. We get people who've never exercised before in their life and they get to come and do kind of an adventure expedition race, leading a little miniature pony with their kit in a saddlebag on the miniature pony. Like when can Connor and I come do that? I would do that. (laughs) I would do that. I would would definitely do it. Yeah. 
honestly, we get overseas people come and do it. So come along. Like you get to oh stay in a beautiful lodge. It's a beautiful area. The miniature ponies are, A, super fit and good at their job and really well behaved now. And they're just so much fun. Like you couldn't pay me to walk 100 kilometers, but give me a, like a little horse to jog alongside. I'm like, yes, let's do it. <laughs> do they carry your pack and stuff? Yeah, they do. They do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, some people put all their stuff in the pack and some people just like having a backpack. But yeah, the little guys like trot along. They're really they love their job. They some of them get really competitive. We have to match the competitive ponies uh-huh. with the competitive runners. And then I'll take the fatter, slower ones. And- yeah, we've got a few of those as well. We've got a few that are just happy to go for a stroll at your pace. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that sounds like what I need. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Oh wow. That's really cool. I was, yeah. so I've I've seen the the hundred mile they do a hundred mile race in Vermont um, yes. where they run, they have runners and riders, mm. but it wouldn't it be funny if the runners had the ponies with them. Yes. That would be amazing. I just love how like you adapt yourself to what is there and how you can help and like rescue these ponies that needed it too. I think that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. I'm a big believer like horses actually need a use. Um, yeah. And you can't justify saving them if you can't also give them something to do. Otherwise, you're just becoming another horse hoarder that becomes part of the problem. So Mm. I'm very much, you know, like especially the miniatures, there's nothing useful. But, you know, people just accumulate them and there's nothing to do if you're not a showy or you can't do harness. So this was a Mm. cool way to bring a bit of what I do overseas back to New Zealand, but in a much smaller package. And then you don't have Mm. to be horsey to do it. You know, they're small enough that you can just come pick up the lead rope and go for a run. Right. Yeah, that is that is so cool. That, that that has my mind like blown actually. Right I know now, thinking about like, like things that could be done with them. <laughs> I would have never imagined something no. like that. But when you say <laughs> it, it just makes sense. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, so you travel to and you do all this wild horse stuff and um obviously mini pony stuff in New Zealand. But um you also so I met you over here. Um, doing an eventing clinic. So how often do you travel abroad doing that? And what, you know, are you still connected to your eventing routes? Yeah, I am still, I am still connected to my eventing routes. I still love eventing. Um, I've got a young horse at the moment that I hope will be a good horse for the future. Um, Yeah, I still travel like around New Zealand a lot, teaching eventing, definitely. And now over to the States, I'd love to do more in the States teaching eventing. Um, and yeah, it was it was it was so much fun to be at the um, Horse World Expo, doing that over there. And then I went down and did a little bit in Texas as well. Um, and I hope to just build that more and more and more because um, I think, yeah, you know, like I did eventing professionally for over ten years, um, and I love producing high level horses. Like I love producing top level horses, um, which I think these days no one knows but I actually do. They just think that I lead expeditions across Mongolia and ride crazy animals. But that was my life before expeditions was eventing. And I'm very, very passionate. I really love teaching. I'm probably, I'm not the person to teach beginners, but I really, really love teaching people that, you know, are trying to produce horses up the levels. And I love um, giving people the skills so that they can do that. I, I really, really enjoy it and I'm really passionate about it. So hopefully um, more and more of that to come. How much of your total business would that be then? Is it a small part of it or is it big, bigger than we think? <laughs> yeah, it, it's. I mean, it used to be my whole business, really. It used to be 90% of my business. And now mm-hmm. I would say it's 
it's roughly probably a third ish. Yeah. Less less producing big numbers of horses now though. I'm much more like in the clinician role and I really love doing the clinic format. Like I love traveling and doing a couple of intense days of teaching people rather than having maybe a stable full of clients horses that you're having to produce um mainly because I can't do that anymore anyway because I'm away for so much of the year like I'm here there and everywhere so it wouldn't work to have a team of clients horses or or a huge team of my own eventing horses now but yeah I'd say it's roughly still a third of my business and something that I still very much love doing I've uh, had a couple of kids here this morning they're about to go to a big show on the weekend so we've been doing their jumping about um I can't three foot three or something or three foot um a meter a meter here um and so yeah they all had an eventing tune up this morning and did some tough cross-country lines and a bit of making sure they're on track for the eventing and really enjoyed it so this morning you know it's it's eventing this morning and then this afternoon we've got a couple of wild horses to work and the kids are downstairs at the moment scrubbing all my miniature ponies for the big hundred kilometer race at the end of the week (laughs) so I mean, obviously the next logical step after a life of all of these adventures is to write a book about it. Um, (laughs) And can you share with us kind of that experience and why you decided to do that? Yeah, definitely. Um, So the very honest answer is that I did the Mongol Derby. I was doing all these things and I've always loved writing. Like that was one thing I always really do enjoy. Um, I've always shared you know, my wild horse journey just by either doing a blog or Facebook posts. Like I've always enjoyed the writing side, but um, HarperCollins, someone contacted me from there and you know, kind of said, would you be interested in writing a book? And at the time I was still uh, in my mid twenties and I hadn't really thought about writing a book at that stage of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but the opportunity came up and they're like, yeah, we'd, we'd like you to write a book. And I was like, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's do it. Absolutely. Um, and so I did, and I, I really enjoyed the process. Um, and I still do really enjoy, I'm almost finished writing a second book at the moment. I just not quite finding the last few uh, spare moments to quite finish it, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I really, really enjoy writing, really like the process of doing the first book and getting it published. Um, that was, when did it come out? It came out in 2018. So Mm. it's almost old now. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it was a very, very cool thing to be able to do. And the great thing about it was on really, really rainy days, I could justify sitting inside at my computer and not riding a horse because I was writing a book. So yeah, it was it was a good, good stormy day activity for about six months. <laughs> Is that how long it took you to write it? Six months? Yeah, it did. It did. I think they we signed the final contract in February and I had to have it finished by September. Wow. Um, and I joke about turnaround. Yeah, it was. Mm. It was. I joke about the stormy days, but it actually was more like I got up very early every morning and dedicated a few hours every morning before I even went out to do the horses to to writing, um, writing part of it to get it done in that deadline and within that time and still have a business outside of that. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, that takes a lot of dedica- dedication and being really strict with your time and what you d- devote it to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. it definitely it definitely is um yeah and I think for anything like that like I have to make that a priority like it has to be the first thing I do in the day Mm -hmm. for me it can't be the last thing because if I've written 
you know, 10 horses and then try to sit down and concentrate, it doesn't work so well. So for me, it has to be, I'd rather get up very early before dawn and do put a couple of hours in and then mm. go and do all the horses. Do you ever say no to anything? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not that often. It probably yeah. gets me into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> notoriously bad at saying no like whenever someone rings me up about horse problems especially the wild horses that I have a really bad reputation of always saying yes mm. and then we're like why did I do that I didn't need another herd of wild horses at my place I just got rid of the last ones um yeah yeah I I probably am a little bit inclined to be on the yes side of the spectrum I don't think yes. that I am but everyone points out that I am so maybe they're right <laughs> But I mean, honestly, if it's not stressing you out to do it, then it's it's not an issue, right? Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it doesn't stress me out. <laughs> I definitely have my moments of like, okay, how is this all going to work out? But I always mm. feel that there's a solution. Like there's a solution to everything if you're willing to figure out what that solution is. Yeah. And yeah. I think you probably need to have a little faith, you know, in yourself and 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 what you do and your experience that you can solve those problems. Absolutely. I think, I think, yeah. And I think that's what expeditions and things like the Mongol Derby and the wild horses have taught me over the years is, you know, I've had enough experience where it is only up to me to solve it. Like it's, there is no other option than to solve whatever it is. And I mean, that might be as simple as just being on your own on the, on the road to horse shows and trying to figure out how to get there. Or it might be, you know, you're on your own in a yard with wild horses and Hey, you just have to get these things trained. There is no other option or it might be out, you know, on expeditions. But yeah, I think, I think, you know, it's easy to look back, but kind of starting from small things and just building, I guess the belief in yourself that, yeah, if push comes to shove, you'll find a way to make this work. Right. How do you keep track of it all? Uh, there's always room for improvement on that front. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, I, I find like, yeah, for me, I have to, I have to make sure that I set aside office hours and yeah. I am very much the person who's guilty of thinking like, Oh, if I'm not physically working, I feel guilty because office hours, you know, they don't, they don't work, but they, but they are. And so I think over the last definitely five years of convincing myself that actually office hours are a very, very valuable part of my daily routine and actually essential to making all these things work. So mm -hmm. yeah, for me, it's, it's trying to make those office hours a priority. And that's why I tend to get up and do it really early in the morning because otherwise a couple of weeks will go by and be like, Oh, I haven't actually done all these emails and things that are essential to my business. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think just, a, you know, coming Allowing myself to think that sitting down in front of the desk is work has been a huge thing for me and not feeling like, I oh, I should be outside physically working. Yeah. Um, that's been probably the biggest lesson over the last, or since starting a company, yeah, five, six years. Um, mm. But yeah, making that logistic side, the office side, the priority and doing that first because there will always be more horses to train and help and do everything. But if I don't do the other side first, none of that's possible. Right. Yeah, I think a lot of um, business owners that we talk to feel the same way, like about uh, accounting or, you know, the financial side of their business. Like they want to go out there and they want to sell or they want to design or yes. they want to manufacture or whatever it is. And, you know, the backside of running that business needs to be uh, taken into consideration as well. Absolutely. I think especially in the horse industry, there's a really 
probably bad culture of that as well of you know mm. so many people who are talented horsemen and women and you know within the equine industry but don't have thriving businesses because they don't make the business side a priority and it's why podcasts like this I think are really useful in bringing these questions up because I've definitely been guilty of it in the past and thinking well I'll just keep training horses and eventually it'll work out but mm. you actually don't do the business side in the office hours it's it's never gonna you know equate and I mean there's so many broke horsemen and women out there isn't there and that have so much talent and yeah it's really 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 hard to do it's really hard to get that balance right and do those office hours and and, you know get good advice on that as well right yep I mean especially for people who are so physical all the time like horse trainers being outside I mean that's where you want to be that's why you do it that's why you love it so you know yeah absolutely tough part of Absolutely. it and I think a lot of guilt like I, I mean it sounds silly but like you know I know a lot of people who feel like off the inside you know they're, they're not working they're, they're like a lot of guilt or like a really misplaced guilt about you know mm-hmm. you have to be out with the horse every moment to really be a horse trainer but that's not actually true yeah, yeah. well I know Chloe it's been really really fun speaking with you and learning more about what you do and Jen and I are going to discuss and see when we can come to New Zealand and <laughs> do something with miniature horses for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, at the end of each episode, we ask the same four questions to every guest and Connor starts with the first. What is one action that women can take to make a big difference in their lives? Um. I think believing that they can do it and then supporting other women like needs to be, yeah, not tear each other down, talk to other women who are doing it. They don't offer advice. Find the one who will. Mm. I like that. What is the best habit that keeps you motivated personally? Uh, I think always thinking that there's a solution to everything. It might not be there yet, but if you keep on at it, you'll find the solution to whatever you're, you're trying to get through or, the next hurdle or the next goal. Yeah. I read a book. It was called everything's figure outable. Yeah. And, and, and so I'm always thinking about that when I'm like in a stuck in a hard spot, I'm like, Oh, but that book, everything is figure outable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. What's your favorite horse movie? Oh, uh, probably the man from snowy river because that's what we recreated a lot of our childhood with we're like yeah let's see how steep we can go and like lie back against the horse's arm waving our arm yeah like yeah definitely that oh i really hope you were gonna say that yeah Yeah. i know i know my my dad will be so happy to hear that because that's like his favorite all-time movie ever yeah yeah exactly that's so funny and who would you recommend to be a future guest on this podcast Oh, I really struggle with this one. There's so many amazing people. Like, um, yeah, I, Jan, like I'd love to hear Janelle Price. I mean, she's a top-level eventer who made it as a non-horsey, you know, from a non-horsey family. Um, there's an amazing woman called Sarah Williams who does the Tough Girl podcast, and she interviews women who have made it in adventure and expeditions, and she gave up her corporate life to host a podcast, and I think it's really interesting. For me. But honestly, like, Maybe not as advice, but the interviews I'd be really intrigued to hear would be like 
the equestrian influencers can like someone interview them and get to the bottom of if they're actually making money like I want to know the real answers like are they using someone else's money is this a lifestyle are they actually making money like if you can get some of them actually get like the nitty-gritty I am dying to know all right I love those suggestions and yes all right we need to find who some an influencer and see how yeah. they make money. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, like influencers who you're like, they're not actually horse trainers. They're not actually like that's the influencers. Yeah. I'm just very curious. I mean, it's probably not quite what you were hoping for as an answer, but I'm just deeply fascinated to know. <laughs> I love it. That's great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking time with us today. It was really awesome to hear your story and learn more about you and, and talk with you about it. Oh, thanks. Lovely talking to you guys as well. And hopefully we see you for a miniature pony race in New Zealand. Yeah, we're going to figure a way to get down there. Yeah. yeah. That was so fun. So much fun. It's so interesting. I mean, I could have gone on for hours asking her questions about that expedition. I know. Me too. I mean, really fascinating just to... I just don't know like where people get the... I don't know the idea, the courage to do something like that, you know, like it's one thing to go and, and do a race like the Mongol Derby, like fine. You know, I've known a few people who have done it, but to then say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get camels and I'm going to go through the Gobi desert (laughs) at negative 40 degrees and it's going to be awesome. Like I, uh, and I'm going to have 10 people go and I'm going to, I'm going to have people pay me to do it. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm going to yeah. be responsible for them. Like, yeah, what's yeah. that's And, and then like to have reindeer and yaks. yaks. <laughs> I was like, I bet that's like sitting on a couch. Yeah. I'll take a slow yak, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. It was just um, so interesting. And, and that she has these friends that she does it with that are her mm-hmm. business partners. And like, she actually started the company. I mean, to just, to think of doing that i i don't think i would go to a place and be like you know what i think an expedition should be done here yeah and you know like she doesn't i don't think we didn't ask her but i doubt she like speaks the language right she she mentioned interpreters so you know she has to rely on a lot of people to make this work so i can just imagine like how amazing her people skills are in order to work with you know, people from a different culture uh, and, you know, they have to work with people in the city to book in the hotels and the flights and then all of the nomadic families that they lodge with along the rides yeah. and and the logistics to have the support vehicles and all of, she said they bring in all of their own gear. Like that is a lot of stuff to bring together like this. And yeah. Okay, yeah, like maybe you do it a few times and it's kind of the same every time-ish. Like you know what you need, but she's still like working with different families, like she said, and finding, you know, sourcing the animals from different places. And I just, I admire someone like that who just doesn't think that there's anything that isn't possible. Um, Yeah. It's really inspiring. Yeah. And to have only three people. I mean, it's not this huge company. Right. You know, it's it's her and two other people that do. I mean, I know they have support people that they probably 
pay and and you know have them but they're not like essentially they're not employees right right it's yeah. like they the three of them split up a lot of the work and they do it themselves and you know that's just amazing mm-hmm. and i also love the idea that you know it was important for them to give back to the community that absolutely you know that was like such a good part of it because you don't think about that you know so many times you go on vacation and it's not about spending your money there right (laughs) right exactly and you know so many times people go on vacations to resorts or whatever and the resorts don't give money to the local community for the you know for the most part they're not you know supporting the places that they're using to make all of this money and i i really that's another thing i admire is that you know she and her business partners they have different areas that are important to them like she said her one partner wanted to really show um what the the people of mongolia do and their culture and explain it and have people support that yeah and it's just um it's really cool to see them have that purpose and and know that what they do is making a positive impact and not just using a place or a culture for what they can make money off of. Right. I know. And that's what I was thinking when she was talking about, um, you know, the nomadic lifestyle and, you know, supporting it, but almost like preserving it. Right. Like, you know, they don't want to go in there and change it. They want people to experience it as it is, Mm -hmm. you know, and they want to have a great experience and show them the best parts of it. But, you know, so many times I think as Americans, we go places and we're like, we have to change this or, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not America. And it's like nice to hear be like, no, you know, we're going in there, we're supporting them. We're using their animals. We're giving back to them, but you know, it's not changing them. I bet you Chloe would probably want them to, like she said, ride the whole way because, you know, and not have support vehicles just because that's her. She's hardcore, right? (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) So, yeah, I, th- I thought it was really interesting. And then I really liked um, at the end when she was talking about um, like fi- things being figure outable, because mm-hmm. I think that's a really important point. And, you know, a lot of times I forget that and I get me too. you know, I, I look at everything as this huge mountain and either I'm going to roll up my sleeves and climb it or I'm going to lay at the bottom of it and kick my feet and scream yeah. and cry that I have yeah. to climb it. And, you know, I've been trying to say that to myself a lot more often is, you know, everything is figure outable. Yeah. And I think just having that mindset of, of being able to find a solution or looking for a solution if you don't have one, like, I think that's so important for anyone, you know, especially if you have your own business, because there's not going to be somebody telling you what to do all the time. You have to figure it out for yourself. And, you know, that that takes um you know that mindset of knowing that you are going to figure it out one way or another um it may not happen right away or it may not be easy it may take a lot of money or take a lot of time or set you back three steps where you wanted to be two steps forward you know it's i think that sort of um thinking is really important and um like you said that that's going to stick with me for a long time of of what she does and the the way 
she just takes things on and says, well, sure, I can figure it out. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I recommend watching the video with her. It's really funny. She gets a phone and they're like, oh, there's a wild baby and it's on a property. It's a foal. It's loose. We got to go. And I hooked up the trailer, took another horse and away they went and got the baby. Yeah. And and um, it's really funny, too. So I know in in New Zealand, they they call horse trailers floats. Really? Yes. <laughs> I've never heard that before. Yeah. It's not I'm, a lorry. No, it's a float. I was like, what? <laughs> At first when I was reading, I was like, what are they talking about floats? And then they said it in the video when she was like, oh, we got to get the float ready. And I was like, oh, it's a horse trailer. Interesting. Well, yeah. You learn something new every day. I know. Because <laughs> uh, all I have in my head is like a parade float. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> what? Mm. The horse is floating along. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, she's just like such a roll of her sleeves and go and do it. So yeah, it, it was it was really cool. I really am glad that we had her on. And it's getting a little late, though, our time because we accommodated her a little bit on the other side. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up for today. And you can find the links to today's guests and the show notes at www.eqbusinesswomen.com. Equestrian B2B is out twice a month on the 1st and the 15th. You can find out more at eqbusinesswomen.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Find Equestrian B2B wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave a review so more people can find us. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with their free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. Now go find your adventure. 